Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the 28th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government, hosted by the Institute for Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the IFG, and it's wonderful to welcome you all this evening. Let's start in the traditional Data Bytes fashion. For those of you here in the building and watching online, hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. I must say, I'm more nervous than usual about my introduction to this evening's Data Bytes with some bad jokes, after seeing that the introduction to this year's Oscars with some bad jokes ended with a very different sort of punchline. Imagine being publicly owned like that. But our only knockouts this evening are our four prize presenters with four punchy presentations for whom I am merely the undercard. And according to the Slido from last month's Data Bytes, perhaps I don't need to worry about being funny. Or maybe I do. Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record, and we are being live streamed, obviously. If you'd like to get involved on social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes, and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents. If you're here in the building, you can use those details to get online. If you're watching online, you can submit questions to our speakers using the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If you're not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb28. And if you're here in the building, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why are we here? Well, Databytes aims to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about different data projects this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. The presenter will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. As you've heard, this is our 28th Data Bytes. You can watch the previous 27, including last month's, on the IFG website. Now, before we take our usual look at what's happened since we last met, those of you watching us online should hopefully see a few questions appearing on Slido for you to answer. Studio audience, I'll be coming to you about these in a short while. We're going to our online audience first because you're very special and we're on a time delay. So those questions, if someone said the following term to you, would you understand what they meant by it? And we're asking you that for A, algorithms, yes or no, B, deep fakes, yes or no, and C, neural turbines, yes or no. So if you're watching on Slido, please answer those now. Be quick, you'll have about 30 seconds, and we'll come back to that shortly. So since we last met, well, there's been some big news here at the IFG, with yesterday's announcement that our director, Bronwyn Maddox, will be leaving to become the director of Chatham House. Ironically, those briefings were attributed. I thought that provided a good opportunity to chart some of the madness we've seen while she's been in charge here at the IFG. Bronwyn was appointed in May 2016. Since then, we've had three prime ministers, two Labour leaders, six leaders of the Liberal Democrats, 11 leaders of UKIP, and three US presidents, including that one in the middle. There's been one Scottish First Minister, two Welsh First Ministers, and two First and two Deputy First Ministers in Northern Ireland, and over a thousand days without a functioning executive. At Westminster, there have been eight different ministers for the Cabinet Office, seven Secretaries of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sports, six International Development Secretaries, six Justice Secretaries, and six Secretaries of State for Work and Pensions. And there's been a fair amount of political chaos caused and catalyzed by two general elections and one referendum, including 
50 ministerial resignations and two sackings outside reshuffles, 20 by-elections, more than 40 government defeats in the House of Commons, more than 100 changes of allegiance as MPs defected were suspended and reinstated, and of course, 16 parties under investigation by Sue Gray. I would wish Bronwyn a calmer time in charge at Chatham House, but I fear the world has other ideas. Now, let's return to our question about whether we understand algorithms, deep fakes, and neural turbines. This is taken from the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation's Public Attitudes Tracker, which they trailed at Databytes last month. You can see some other results here. 95% of people know what apps are, falling to 80%, still high for targeted advertising. So, studio audience, hands up. How many of you understand what an algorithm is? So, who shall I ask to define it? I'm only joking. Uh, and I think, what have we got from the online audience? I've got very Oscars style coming up to me to see. So, 95% of our online audience uh, think that they know what an algorithm is. That's very impressive. Let's see how that compares to CD, CDI's uh, ranking. Just over 60% of people knew what an algorithm was. So how about deep fakes? How many of you here in the audience know what a deep fake is? Much fewer, okay. 80% um, of our online audience apparently knew uh, what a deep fake was, and that compares to just under 30% when CDI asked. And finally, Neural turbines. Hands up, studio audience, if you know what a neural turbine is. We've got nobody in the studio audience. We've got 93% of our online audience. 15% uh, of those surveyed by CDI understood what a neural turbine was, which is interesting, since it's a term CDI made up to test people's overconfidence. Now, gloriously, the published results also tell us some of the groups that were overconfident in their answers. There's a line showing 15%. Let's see who's to the right of it. Yes, men. Younger age groups. Respondents in London. And people with high digital confidence. CDI also grouped people into segments based on their attitudes to data. Enthusiastic tech pros and optimistic tech dabblers were more likely to understand a completely invented term. And speaking of tech enthusiasts, sometimes lacking a real understanding, this week, the Treasury announced the UK government's first non-fungible token, or NFT, a form of crypto asset. Sometimes criticised for not taking energy and the environment seriously, accused of not doing enough to halt illicit money flows, and working in mysterious ways that few people truly understand, the Treasury is probably the most powerful government department. Enough of the preamble, let's get ready to rumble. We have four terrific speakers for you this evening. First, we'll hear from Alison Pritchard, Deputy National Statistician and Director General for Data Capability at the Office for National Statistics, hearing about one of government's major data projects, the Integrated Data Service. She'll be followed by Ed Humpherson, head of the Office for Statistics Regulation, on how it's not enough for data to be technically strong and the need for intelligent transparency based on trustworthiness, quality, and value. Up next, for her second Databytes appearance, will be Laura Sands, CBE, chair of the Energy Digitalization Task Force, on the case for limited public interest digital assets. And our fourth and final speaker this evening will be Leanne Summers, head of AI strategy at NHS Transformation on developing a learning health and social care system enabled by data and AI. Our next Data Bites will take place on May the 4th, Star Wars Day. Imagine what that introduction is going to be like. And then the 8th of June, note the date change, that's the second Wednesday of the month, then the 6th of July, and then we take a break for August.
We're only able to keep Databytes running thanks to the support of sponsors. We're unusual this evening in not having one. I'm delighted to say the next three Databytes events are all taken care of, but if you would like your organisation's name up in lights and some of your work being presented on stage, then please contact my colleague Pratesh. And if you'd like to speak or know someone who should, please get in touch with me. We won't be hosting virtual drinks tonight, though I understand that, like the Edinburgh Festival, we had our own fringe last month, so keep an eye on hashtag IFGDataBytes in case there's a repeat. That's more than enough from me. Time to hear from our first speaker this evening, Alison. Thank you very much. I'm just watching that clock to see when it actually starts. Um, Alison Pritchard, I should start by saying I'm, I'm the real thing. I'm not a deep fake, um, but of course, if I was, I'd probably still say that anyway. So, delighted to be here. I don't often share a platform with colleague Ed Humpherson, so maybe I should use a little bit of my time just by clarifying the Office for National Statistics is the executive delivery arm of the UK Statistics Authority, and I'm going to be followed by Ed, who's the Office for Statistical Regulation, the regulating arm of the UK Statistical Authority. So I'll just set that out, and I'm sure Ed will introduce himself in his own way. So the integrated data service, some on the call may be familiar already, some won't. So I'm going to try and get us all on the same page. Happy to get through to levels of detail when we get to the Q&A. Fundamentally, this is a service that's being built for analysts initially in government, devolved administrations, and external accredited researchers. Get this right, this could broaden out to a much wider range of users. At this stage, we're landing the service in a way that supports uh, those particular cohorts. So, what is it? A few images, just I don't need to convince this particular audience around the role that data has been playing over the last number of years at the heart of, uh, of decision-making, evaluation, and policy development, etc. Some of the images that reflect uh, those challenges that the UK has faced. What I would say, and I think there's three main points to land with this particular slide. First of all, for all the uh, hardship and suffering of the pandemic, I would say it has accelerated the sharing and usage of data by probably three to five years. Um, the second key point, I think, to land is that the expectation, both with the public and with policymakers and, uh, and, and users of data, is that we will need to continue this level of data usage because of the nature of the challenges ahead. And you'll see on this slide some of the things relating to supply chain resilience. Uh, at the moment, thinking about how to support the, um, the incoming Ukrainian uh, nationals in terms of support for public services in the UK, uh, the cost of living challenges ahead, all of these factors we know we need to put data at the very heart of. And I think the third point from this particular slide relates to behind the scenes, whilst there's been some fantastic work done by analysis in generating uh, key stats, behind the scenes a lot of work goes on to try and bring data together at pace arrange the legal gateways, get the data integrated, and we have to find a way to do that more slickly because the next crisis will occur and we don't yet know what that is. So if that's how we have been working, then now take a moment to imagine an environment in which the data is already available, the data is already linked for use, where there is some logical connection of the data that we have across the breadth of government, and where the legal gateways are created and established for the broadest set of use of that data where we don't yet know what those questions might be. Now, if you're imagining that, then you are imagining the integrated data service 
which has at its heart the ability to operate entirely cloud-based, hence not yet another data lake, to reach out and access data where it is, not to be one system that rules them all. That's quite important. A layer of data virtualization, a phrase that I will continue to use quite actively now, which allows data to be viewed, seen, and used, regardless of where it comes from and its, its origins, but to create a data catalog for active use. I'm trying to coin the phrase um, critical national data assets. We have critical national infrastructure. Surely we should have critical national data assets. That brings together data architecture across government in a new way we haven't done. And slicker data governance, allowing us to maintain our responsibilities around ethics, around security, around um, anonymization of data, but to do so, removing as much friction from the pace at which data can be used effectively. All of those things set up the integrated data service. So the model uh, is based around data first uh, and answer the questions because we have the data available. It's really hard graft. And I think that's probably the reflection of, um, of this particular program. Focused around a series of data assets, we already have a public health data asset. Um, we also are moving into net zero, leveling up, subnational, uh, jobs and growth, supply chain, the kind of topics where we know there is data to be integrated and to be used effectively. Program components, I shall be brief. The three on the left there are the fundamentals. So this is not purely a technical program. This is being built on Google Cloud at the moment. Uh, it uses something called Denodo, which is a data virtualization. It is API-driven and cloud-based driven. The second component there is the integrated data assets, which are um, fundamental for this service to operate. We're working hard to bring in data, bring it together, and integrate it through linkage. Probably the most fundamental here being the fact this is a trusted research environment. So possibly for all the points that Ed may be bringing up next, this must uh, abide by all our legal requirements or ethical considerations uh, and needs to make sure that this retains public confidence. Data sources. I had fundamentally originally thought that API linkage will probably be the most uh, active. I now believe that what we're calling a deposit model, which is cloud-based uh, instance of linking data, will become the most prolific. Uh, and that's related to the more and more basis of cloud-based uh, hosting of data across government departments and other locations. So I expect our deposit model to probably be the most uh, active in this space. You're thinking, that's great, but when on earth will something like this actually emerge? Well, 2022 is the year of delivery. We're already progressed through an initial private beta. We're entering the next private beta in a matter of uh, two or three weeks, beginning of May. Big launch is the initial public beta, which uh, is a civil service season, summer, but actually is the end of June, beginning of July. Uh, and that's when we roll out the users as well. We scale up and we scale out, including accredited external researchers. And we expect to have a degree of what we're describing as medium sensitive data at that point. We move on to public beta, full public beta accredited uh, by cabinet office colleagues. That allows us then to uh, to seek Digital Economy Act accreditation and using the Digital Economy Act as our key legal gateway to maximize the analysis that can be undertaken. The data deal is a fundamental element of doing this differently. So the concept of the data deal is moving away from hundreds of bilateral arrangements around individual data assets to a series of uh, arrangements and agreements with the particular data controllers, whether that's HMRC, DWP, external as well, around the, data, the nature of the data available and the extent of how it can be used. So setting a framework for how that data can then be analyzed, that will allow users, 
in some cases to make uh, self-assessed judgments of whether the use fits within that framework, fully auditable, in some cases that will go back to the data controller for agreement, but fundamentally we're trying to streamline the process from what is days to really should be minutes and hours. Uh, there are four projects already in the portfolio, and I'll draw out one in my 40 seconds left, which is the Climate Change Portal. If you haven't seen it, go look at it, climate-change.data.gov.uk. It's an example of the new dissemination that will be available, uh, the public engagement and the way that people can then use data effectively as well as downloading it further. So this begins the journey for IDS. Uh, these four, we move on to further, uh, further use cases, and as I progress, I want to move away from merely project-based approaches and to the concept of um, bite-size uh, queries on government data that fit within the construct of safe and secure. So IDS is coming this year, 2022. What's not to like? Thank you. Timing as well. Um, I'm going to be coming to the audience uh, for the first question, um, so do wait for the mic to come to you and tell us who you are and where you're from. If you can, remember you will be on the record. Uh, for those of you watching us online, we've got some questions coming in already, but if for some reason you're not on Slido, go to bit.ly slash slidodb28. So I'm going to take the first question from our live audience. Anyone want to ask Alison anything about all of that? So, um, Ed, first question, and the timer will start once you start asking the first question. So please do keep your questions short and crisp, questions, not comments. Ed. Well, Alison, I'm going to invite you to give my presentation in about uh, seven and a half minutes for me. Uh, tell everybody about uh, your thinking on adopting the principles of the code of practice for the outputs, the portals, the way in which the public will interface yeah. with the IDS outputs. Thank you. So fundamentally, this service builds on what we have been doing with the secure research service, with a service available um, already for government and external researchers. And built into the SRS is the expectation that data will be uh, handled appropriately and will be published and will be put into the public domain with the right protections around it. The, the IDS is going to be slightly different because the IDS is optimised for government use. Uh, which doesn't mean we're reducing the quality of the service for external users. It means we are hugely scaling up the quality of the service for government users because, according to the National Data Strategy, this is to help government make better use of its own data for the purpose of policy evaluation, etc. Now, I, I don't want to preempt your TQV discussion coming up next, but there are opportunities for us to make sure that the service is recognised as um, encouraging the use of the uh, code of practice for use of analytical data and analysis, as well as quality, uh, factors around the quality of the data and how it's used. Now, in terms of policy evaluation and policy development, there may well be a time lag between how data is used to support policy development, but there is clearly an expectation that that data should be available uh, in due course for, uh, for the public to analyze as well. Finding that process so that we don't discourage uh, policymakers from actively using data for better policy is where the challenge sits. Fundamentally, this is a, a trusted environment, and fundamentally, this can only succeed with the confidence of the public in what we're seeking to do. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I'll take two questions, uh, two related questions together from our online audience. Anonymous asks, good evening to you, Anonymous, is this platform only for government use? 
And Sam from Med Confidential, evening to you, Sam, asks, have ONS been asked to install any third-party black box modules in the IDS or the Secure Research Service to run analyses that would bypass output checking and project or ethical approval? And what did the ONS say when you were asked? So I suppose about private um, involvement in, in both yeah. platforms. Yeah, okay. So in, in the first case, uh, probably touched upon it there, which is the the service is, is optimised for government use, but actually we expect an awful lot of ongoing use by accredited external researchers in the academic environment and those that are doing really critical analysis to support um, sort of national thinking. Uh, I expect the journey to progress into, I hope, local authority use as well, both incoming data and data available for, uh, for such use. The complexity will always be around the nature of the data exchange agreements and how we can trade off, if you like, the, the broadest set of agreements with the, the nature of the users. I have in the past also been asked around, is there a risk of creating a, a multi-tier model in doing so? And I've provided an honest answer, which is it may well be that some users will likely have more active access to, to data, particularly if they are within government directly. Um, question around um, black box. Components. I, I think black box may be, may be different ways of defining what we might consider to be, uh, to be the case. For the Secure Research Service, we have avoided putting any software on the Secure Research Service that we are not fully and entirely confident that will allow us to maintain the security uh, of, of the data. So I can give a quite a clear short answer to the SRS, which is no, uh, we have not. Although we have been exploring, as others have been, the nature of software that may life, make life easier for, for researchers uh, in, in understanding what data is available. But at this stage, we have not because uh, the, the nature of, of both ethics and security of the data is paramount for us. In terms of the integrated data service, black box software could include arguably the data virtualization uh, that we're applying across the piece. So we're working very carefully with, uh, with our security assurance uh, uh, colleagues uh, and with others to understand the nature of um, the impact of the, of the environment for different elements of software. It is a major leap from the secure research service to the integrated data service. A cloud-based environment creates all sorts of different challenges and opportunities, and we're working this through, and I'd be keen to continue to discuss this with, uh, with interested parties. Excellent. Well, you're always welcome here to discuss it as well, and I'm sure we'll continue that discussion in future. Um, I'll come back to the audience in a second, but another online question, again from Anonymous. Um, what will make departments share their data with ONS and the IDS beyond uses just for themselves, but with other users in mind too? So I was talking to, to, to friends in the room earlier, the fact that um, we're all operating now in a, a space where we're understanding how best to, to utilize the data that we, we have available to us. And the challenge for all of us is not to, um, to start to create closed systems. So I'm working with NHS colleagues around the work that they have underway to create a new trusted research environment for, uh, for the health sector. Likewise, colleagues in, uh, in defense and, and other parts of government and cross uh, and central government systems as well. So the IDS really needs to sit as a portal to connect with other technical systems to allow us to make sure that we can make available, for instance, uh, data that we generate in ONS, as well as enabling data from other bits of government to be shared more widely. And I think in due course, getting both the technical architecture and the data architecture right between these different portals will be the direction we're all heading in. 
And that is fundamentally a big challenge that uh, I'll also come back and talk another time as well. Excellent, thank you. Um, have we got any questions in the room? Yes, if uh, get the microphone to the back there. Uh, hi, thanks, Alice. Could you, uh, you mentioned a milestone at which you apply the Digital Economy Act or powers therein. Could you say a little bit more about um, what that allows you to do or not to do? Yes, so the Digital Economy Act has, has various components to it. Some of it is around protecting data, but other parts are about utilising data effectively for, uh, for analytical use. It provides a, uh, a, class, a, a, a broader uh, use case for the use of data to support the public good, in effect, in the purpose of evaluation. I'm often asked the question around what are the, what are the, what's the friction and the barriers to better data usage. Part of the answer is normally we don't apply the right legal gateways to, to make good use of the data. We often apply the legal gateway for which the data was originally gathered. And this is why, in relationships with HMRC, for instance, they will legitimately say data is gathered for the purposes of uh, tax uh, administration. And we're seeking to put data to a much broader use. So the Digital Economy Act, although we still have some gaps around health and social care, will allow us to, to apply a broader legal gateway, um, which is both legitimate and justifiable, and has the protections around it as well. And I think it's generally accepted that we haven't made, we collectively haven't made sufficient use of the Digital Economy Act to date. I'm going to squeeze in a couple of quick uh, final questions related both about public engagement from our online audience. Peter Wells asks, if a citizen wants to know more about IDS, what page on the ONS website should they start with to understand things like the service, how their data is being used in projects and what the outcomes have been? And we've got a general question from Anonymous, which is, what are your plans to embed public engagement into this programme to ensure you maintain the social licence to use these data for analysis? Indeed. I mean, transparency is, is vitally important, and there's absolutely no reason why we should not be approaching a, a highly transparent approach to how the data uh, can be used and is being used within the service. We have choices to make, uh, and I'd be keen to explore with, with interested parties uh, where we go on that journey of transparency. We will certainly be indicating what data is on the service. We do that already for the Secure Research Service. Um, we're having all sorts of fun and games around what branding is right and making sure we get that right at the moment. So I would say, given we are a couple of weeks away from our new private beta, uh, we should expect by summer to have quite an active website with more information about the service and where people can go. And I would encourage an active public debate around the effective use of, of data. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing how it develops and having you back at some point to update us. But for now, Alison, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. And our second speaker this evening is Ed. Well, um, good, uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Ed. I'm head of the Office for Statistics Regulation. We are the UK's regulator for government statistics and data. We set the standards that all government departments must follow, uh, and we uh, uphold those standards through various reviews and interventions. And I'm going to talk to you today about TQV, trustworthiness, quality, and value. Now, I'm a big fan of the Databytes genre. I've noticed that a great Databyte one of these great eight-minute talks, has cool new apps and tech, 
uh, sort of thing that Alison was talking about. It has eye-catching uh, visualizations, has arresting new insights from data. Uh, my data byte has no new apps and tech, it has no eye-catching visualizations, and absolutely no arresting insights from data. Now, I suppose I could have talked about some eye-catching things that we do. I could have talked about our campaign for intelligent transparency, which is about challenging government to recognize that communicating data is about more than just dumping a single juicy factoid on the public. I could have talked about our recent groundbreaking report on uh, statistics and data for children and young people, uh, visibility, vulnerability, and voice. Uh, it's highlighting massive data gaps. I could have even talked about uh, the big interventions we do, our main eye-catching activity, uh, calling out the Prime Minister. Uh, but I'm going to avoid talking about any of these things. Instead, I'm going to focus on foundations. And why is that? Well, we live in a world of abundant data. Data are used constantly to communicate, to argue, to inform, and equally to misinform. And it follows from this that sometimes people can lose confidence. They can be not sure about what sources to trust. And to make our way through this as a community of people who care about data, we need to recognize that the act of communicating and publishing data is about more than just numbers. Data themselves are never just numbers. They are a representation of a context, of a reality, of an experience. And it follows from that that uh, communicating with data is a social exercise. It's about communicating, connecting with an audience. And as a result of that, how things are done is just as important as what is done. So this leads us to TQV. TQV stands for trustworthiness, quality, and value. Trustworthiness is about confidence in those producing, the people and processes that produce statistics. And this confidence is supported by commitments, commitments to openness, to transparency, to professionalism, actually to an organization doing things that may not be in its own short-run interests. For example, like committing to publish statistics on a particular day, regardless of whether that fits with the, uh, the political news cycle of that day. Or committing to put the interests of data subjects, the people, the people the data are about, put those interests first. Or uh, in my case, committing to communicate something abstract like the foundations of your work and not the juicy, exciting stuff about the prime minister. Quality is all about the data and methods that produce assured statistics. This is the world of explanation, of explaining where data come from, uh, about the methods you use and why, uh, and most importantly, being completely clear about your judgment on strengths and limitations, uncertainties in your data. That's, uh, that's quality. And value is all about engagement with the interests of users. It's about finding out what the user wants, finding out what the user wants to know, and providing insights on those questions. So think of T as commitments, Q as explanations, and V as conversations. And they work together, mutually reinforcing. TQV underpins all of our work as a regulator. We've codified TQV into a code of practice, and that code is used to support the production of dashboards and statistics in government. Uh, TQV, we've uh, created guidance uh, for things like uh, intelligent transparency, uh, models, the use of models in government, 
And the universal principles go much more wide than that. They're used to support evaluation in government, uh, fiscal forecasts, and you'll notice from my artfully placed question to Alison a few minutes ago, can also support the uh, dissemination of outputs from the IDS. And this idea of universal application isn't just fanciful. TQV is taken up in lots of contexts which aren't really official statistics, including the hugely popular coronavirus dashboard by Transport for London, by UCAS, by the Scottish Fiscal Commission, and many more. And uh, I just, uh, I don't know if this will come out very clearly, but that's a quote from um, UKHSA who produced the dashboard, adopting TQV, uh, well, you can read it, helps users to understand the processes involved uh, and demonstrates that what they're doing uh, well. Scottish Fiscal Commission, uh, thanks to this ongoing commitment to TQV, uh, that we've already developed, developed this great reputation. So if you want to find out more, here are some links to uh, our work. Uh, you'll find at the top there the links to TQV and how to adopt the code of practice. At the bottom, if you want the juicy stuff, the sugar rush of the, of the interventions, that's in our correspondence line. But I want to close, uh, in a sense, with two reflections. Uh, the two things I think I'm wrong about. Uh, the first is, at the beginning, I said, well, I didn't have a tool to share. But I think I do, actually. I think TQV is a framework which in the hands of a data analyst, a data communicator, a statistician, a data scientist, a data architect, it's a tool that can really help secure public confidence. So I think I was rather underselling what I was talking about. And the second thing I was wrong about was I don't think the great data bytes that I heard really were those things that I listed. Of course, they had them. They had visualizations. They had arresting insights from data. But if, like me, you believe data are more than just numbers, you'd realize that I was being seduced by the superficial there. What makes those data bytes great is that they are underpinned by this notion of being about TQV, implicitly, perhaps. Uh, they embody a commitment, a commitment by the analyst to be open by the mere fact of presenting it in a place like this. Uh, they, they embody an explanation the analyst, the data scientist, talking openly about the strengths and weaknesses of what they do. Uh, and of course, they embody a conversation, because after your eight minutes, you have eight minutes of discussion, which is what I'm going to do now. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Ed, for an excellent presentation and for taking a sledgehammer to the Databytes fourth wall as well. Very good. Deconstructing the genre. Brilliant. A very postmodernist data bytes. Um, I will come to the audience uh, for a first question, and I'm conscious all of the questions so far have been either male or anonymous. Um, if you are online and would like to ask a question, we've got some coming in already. If you're not already on the Slido page, then it's bit.ly slash slidodb28. So do we have any questions in the live audience? Yes. Um, if you just wait for the microphone for a second. Uh, there we are. I'm interested in how you deal with the dyed-in-the-wool anti-data people here. My journey was, I left college in 1970, started working for which, investigating mainly conveyancing how property was transferred from the consumer's point of view. I learned a lot from that, went into practice, and within a few weeks, 
I was reported to senior partners because I was trying to change things, which was a, an insult to professors. Could I ask you to quickly wrap up, just because we're on the time? Professions, could I, could I say that you've got a particular problem with convincing because the people who do it, the lawyers, not only have a monopoly, they've had it since 1804. And it's still go, going. You, they have thought of improvements. I'm going to have to stop they you there, are I'm now afraid. Try, um, they are now refusing to use... Inf it proved paper form. Now, how do you actually deal with people like that? Get them together, bang heads together, whatever, whatever it is. So I, I think um, two observations really about how to... The question is really about the sort of the dyed-in-the-wall people who, who uh, reject what I think probably we all as a data bytes community uh, really uh, consider as, as profoundly important, which is... Uh, being humble in the face of the data and being willing to, um, to allow the data to, to, to guide us. So I'd say two things. One is, uh, I think we do live in a world now where it's becoming harder and harder to be a dyed-in-the-wool person with their head in the sand. We live in a world of um, very, very prominent uses of data. I think it's expected now much more in discourse. It's expected much more now um, in, in professional development. Uh, so I think that they, they might be uh, a dwindling bunch is the first thing. The second thing I'd say is I'm actually more concerned not about them because I think that they're like an easy target. We can persuade them by uh, showing the benefits of data. What I worry more about is the sort of um, uh, Aravist kind of uh, people who kind of think that they can pepper what they talk about with data phrases and therefore pass themselves off as knowing something about data. But really, it's just a little veneer. We were talking earlier before, uh, before we arrived about this tendency for people to use uh, kind of the phrase of the, of the day, be it Bitcoin or, 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 or whatever. And I th that worries me more because I think that leads to the sort of superficiality that, that, uh, that doesn't really help us. So thank you for your question. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, got a question from Sui Leng online. Uh, evening to you, Sui Leng. Does TQV incorporate data protection impact assessments required under the UK GDPR in order to help meet legal obligations and ensure the human rights impact of data processing are assessed? Absolutely. Um, so um, if you look at the code of practice, uh, it's got these three pillars, trustworthiness, which I explained as commitments, quality and value. The trustworthiness pillar, which is about commitments given by the organization uh, to its audiences, uh, include very clear commitments to uh, absolutely respect the rights of data subjects and to follow all the relevant uh, UK legislation. And I would regard any breach of UK legislation as a de facto breach of that code of practice without question. Excellent, thanks. Uh, we've got a question now from Sam from MedConfidential. Um, again, quite a specific one, but there might be some more general points uh, from it as well, which is what does the OSR think um, the owners of trusted research environments should say when a project asks them to install third-party black box code bought from an overseas supplier, which takes a copy of all data in a TRE and allows bypass of governance and processes in analysing that data? Well, the first thing to say is thank you to Sam, because he was good enough to share that question with me uh, uh, in advance. So thank you very much for that, Sam. And if my answer is rubbish, I've already got no excuse, because I've had 24 hours to, to, to think of it. Um, I think I would say, you know, like I'm a one-trick pony. Like everything, any question you ask me, I find a way to 
maneuver it back to TQV. So I'm going to move that one back to TQV. And I would say I would expect any trusted research environment to think about a proposition, a black box proposition, from the perspective of trustworthiness. What commitments can they give to their, their audiences, their public, if they are using a black box? And it sounds like they may be, it might be difficult if it's a black box. What can they say about quality if it's a black box? Well, it's really quite hard to be sure about strengths and limitations if, you, if it's in a black box. And of course, uh, in terms of value, what value does a black box confer to, to, to users? I would, I would encourage those TREs to use, sorry for mixing up my, my three-letter acronyms there, uh, the TREs to use TQV. Uh, but as I say, that is probably my answer to absolutely everything in life. Excellent. Thanks, Ed. Um, I'll come to the audience in the next round of questions. Uh, but for now, we've got another question from Anonymous. Um, it seems like some politicians are genuinely contrite and apologetic if called out around inappropriate yeah. use of statistics, but others aren't. Thinking about improving the public debate about the use of data, what does the OSR do about those that seem to care less? Well, the first thing is I completely agree with the first part of the question. Our experience overwhelmingly is that uh, politicians want to get it right. I think for, for at least two reasons. The first reason is they want to get it right because they want to get it right because they care about getting it right. Secondly, because if they get it not right or we, we, we highlight a different interpretation, the story becomes not what the story they want to talk about. It, becomes, it shifts to something else, and that's not helpful for them. I think in the few, the short, uh, small number of cases where that maybe isn't the, the case, you have to remember what our objective is. Our objective is we're not, we're not policing what people say. What we want to do is to make sure that the statistics are being interpreted in a way which is faithful to what the statistics actually say. And if you have that as your objective, in a way, what we want is that we don't want people to pick up the wrong end of the stick. Uh, and as long as that's the outcome, what the sort of the, the, uh, the, the degree of recalcitrance or otherwise matters less than the, the protecting or preserving the, 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 uh, you know, a public understanding of what the statistics actually say. That's the goal we're, we're, we're pursuing. Thanks. Any questions from our live audience? Um, I'm going to come to the one just in front. So next, next row, no, next row ahead. Sorry. So obviously making progress across the pillars is sort of a never-ending journey. I'm just interested in which of the three fields are most challenging at the moment? Well, very, very interesting question. Uh, my team will not let me answer this. We've never forgiven me if I didn't answer it by saying the J word is banned in OSR. Nobody's ever allowed to be on a journey because it's, uh, we're, so we have to find, we're, it's, a, it's a never ending process, I think. Can we agree on that? Never ending process, thank you. It's a never ending process, it is indeed. Um, it, it shifts all the time. For a long time, I thought it was quality. Um, I think across the, the government data estate, there have been significant strides in quality. Um, I think the pandemic has been a lot about value. It's been communicating in a way which engages with people. Uh, but I think under, underlying all of that, trustworthiness, uh, the commitment to handling statistics in an appropriate way is the sort of, it's the base that you have to continue to attend to. And I, probably, I think probably that's on my mind a lot at the moment. And I'm going to squeeze in a final quick question from the online audience, which comes back to our postmodernism. Um, this is from Tom King. What can we do to shift attention from eye-catching stories to the need for firm foundations? And is the political accountability system becoming more aware of how important this is? Uh, well, hello, Tom. It's good to hear from you. Hope you're well. Uh, I think the system is becoming... I mean, there's always tittle-tattle, but I think the system is becoming more aware of the profound importance of... Of, of using evidence in a way that respects the underlying uh, feature of that evidence. And I would say that, that this is probably a never-ending, what's that word? 
challenge. Thank you. Never-ending challenge, uh, but I think we are making progress with it. Excellent. Well, uh, an optimistic note on which to end. Thank Ed, you. thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And our third speaker this evening, her second uh, appearance at Databytes, but first in person, over to Laura. Thank you so much. And it's, it's great to be here and actually meet the team, as, I, as you say, in person. Um, I'm here a little bit as a fraud because I'm an energy geek who has been over the last five or six years trying to absolutely drive the, um, the energy sector to embrace data and digitalization in a sort of drive to modernize them and to reflect other sectors because the energy sector is quite far behind on Ed the journey. Um, and I uh, have been chairing the Energy Digitalization Task Force. Now, the energy sector is going through a phenomenal change. Um, we've got five, 400 actors, more or less, in the energy sector, all of whom who know each other's golf handicap. And we're moving to 100 million actions and assets onto the system that has been totally linear. So how are we going to do this? Now, in many ways, the sector has been thinking that it can do it in its wonderful analogue way, but absolutely impossible, and the system will collapse under the sort of 25 million EV cars, heat pumps, all of which you can do more than one thing. And so here, I don't know whether this is off-gem here, confused in the middle, um, or whether this is the consumer, or whether it's just me, but this will not be able to be done unless we digitalise in quite a fundamental way. So it's an exciting challenge, but not a challenge that the energy sector is totally uh, attuned to, although we're working hard on it. So we had the Energy Data Task Force, uh, which we published about three years ago, and its core proposition, and I don't know whether Ed and Alison will totally agree with this, but anyway, the core proposition that is now embedded in uh, energy regulation, and that is that energy data, energy systems data, is presumed open. And that has changed culturally the whole sector. And I think they agreed without really understanding the implications of it, but we now have it and it's in there happening. Uh, the digitalization task force is very much about operationalizing the data and unlocking the whole project around the decarbonisation um, of the energy system and net zero. Now, at the moment, there is digitalisation in the energy sector. Hooray, fantastic. But it is like the Tower of Babel, and it is quite thin in terms of what it does, and it's very point-to-point. -point. But anybody who is an energy geek in this room or online will know that actually it's a connected system, and demand and supply needs to be balanced, and there are all sorts of interventions to keep the system stable. So our job at the Digitalization Task Force was to get the plumbing. So I've absolutely decided I've redefined my career as a plumber. Um, but it is absolutely driven by net zero. So we had use cases. I hate use cases because use cases are only what you can think of today, and actually we're in a very fast-moving world. So we created these very, very large, wide use cases. And the first one that really matters is prices to devices. And that means that an EV car can have visibility of an offshore wind farm and vice versa. Now, 
Of course, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to be driving down the M25, understanding what's going on in the North Sea. However, the visibility of this system needs interoperability right across all these different asset classes. And so this was so-called the use case that was broad enough to ensure that I wasn't uh, frustrated by being confined by today's thinking. So these are the highlights. I don't think it can come out very well, but anyway, hopefully you get the slides um, afterwards. Um, we had uh, six key platforms that we were looking at. Firstly, is we needed to unlock the value of um, customers' actions um, and their assets. And again, I would really welcome to understand more from Ed in particular um, about that particular proposition. Deliver interoperability, absolutely crucial, right across this very, very dispersed and changing supply chain. Integrate new governance models, and again, I know we can learn from Alison and from others around that, but we have created recommendations that are energy specific. Um, security, 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 security is the first thing we did and absolutely tried to bottom that out. It's absolutely crucial that we create interoperability, but that we don't create more vulnerabilities. Actually, strangely enough, the biggest vulnerability to the energy sector and how it's changing is if we don't have visibility, strangely enough. And so the idea of lack of visibility being security is actually uh, quite the opposite. Um, the fifth element is something that I think is, and it's got picked up by other parts of government, is actually getting quite a lot of traction, um, and that is about carbon visibility and dynamic monitoring. So the energy sector is the sort of feeder for the majority of the economy. And currently, it does collect carbon data, and it reports it once every six months, once every year... This is not giving us any dynamic visibility of carbon flows. And so we're very, very clear about the recommendation on that. And the last one, which is actually the biggest problem and most difficult, is getting a digitalization culture embedded. So what we have is a wonderful energy engineer who has, is used to building things for 25 years that has, is absolutely tested to destruction before a penny is spent on it. And then we have a digital person, and the two do not communicate. They have no understanding of each other's rhythm, of each other's risk profiles, of how to invest in these assets. And so that is a very key recommendation. So under the customer, I've just done the highlights. And again, this is something maybe that I can learn from other people um, more about, but we have really taken the Estonian model of a customer consent portal where I would consent to have my data used or decide not. It's absolutely crucial that we create control, that customers have control, which will allow them to have trust, which will allow them to participate um, in the energy system. And we think that that is what we would call a public interest asset because actually it could be, and we're again getting picked up from other government areas, um, it could be a common consent for other sectors, not just the energy sector. The second is mandating smart energy assets. That's all fun and games. 
um, because we're still installing heat pumps that aren't smart. Interoperability, we're proposing a digital spine that sits with its nodal um, in interoperability right across the system. And we believe that that exists in, other, we know it exists in other sectors, um, but actually it hasn't been transposed to the energy sector. And then the last area is this dynamic carbon monitoring, which is absolutely crucial for net zero. So the outcomes beyond energy, as I said, the customer unlocking this customer data is absolutely crucial and giving them control. Delivering, uh, um, in many ways, carbon visibility is going to be crucial. Addressing, as you both Alison and Ed said, this new digital governance that needs to be put in place. And we hope very much that there are one or two, uh, four assets here that we're proposing become public interest assets. They're not necessarily going to be built by the government, but they're public interest assets that, do, that must not sit and must not be developed by uh, the private sector, but need to be contested by the private sector to ensure that they don't encroach on commercial opportunities. So unlike some things that we have in the DCC and smart meters, which has been so totally over, um, in many ways, specced, and is very, very gold-plated. We need these public interest assets. The sector is very much behind this. Surprisingly, because I thought some of them might want to think that this was overreached by government, but this allows the 100 million actions and assets to perform in the energy sector to drive decarbonization. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. It feels like we're getting back to normal, not only when we've got all of our speakers in the, in the building for the first time since February 2020, but when somebody holds Estonia up as an example of I mean, uh, great Estonia, digital government. I mean, Estonia, the rock star of <laughs> digitalisation. Uh, just a reminder to everybody watching us online, you can submit questions using Slido. Go to bit.ly slash slidodb28 if you're not there already. And I'm going to start with um, quite a fun online question mm -hmm. uh, to start with. <laughs> this is from Tom King. Would you recommend the strategy of getting analog leaders to sign up to digital innovation they don't really understand? <laughs> I, think it, I think it's very challenging. And I think actually, I think Ed mentioned this before. Um, it is very complicated. And what we've got is we've got these sectors that have grown up in, in, in a very, very engineering, very long-term way. And the communication, and I, I see it, you know, when you've got these great digital people. I mean, first of all, the energy sector needs to attract a lot more talent. And if what they're doing is being interviewed by somebody who is, in many ways, a long-term energy engineer, actually, the sector, uh, or we're finding it difficult to attract the right sort of talent. It is very difficult. I think that there is a lot of, at senior, very senior management, I think that there is quite a bit of change. And I think they are really starting to understand the digitalization um, sort of opportunities. Also, interestingly, and very pleased that Ofgem actually took on some of the data task force recommendations, which was saying that digitalization, data and digitalization needed to be a board matter and that they were interested in the boards of the regulated businesses having people with capabilities um, in data and digitalization. 
So it, it, it is, it, it's a journey, Ed. Um, it, but I think we're getting there. And I think also the compelling issue is people wanting to come and join the sector because it is really at the heart of the net zero opportunities and they feel that that's an exciting place to be. Excellent, thank you. Um, I'll take a question from our in-building audience now. Uh, we've got one in the back right. Um, obviously, we've just, we're in the middle of an energy crisis, but also we've been through an interesting period of supplier consolidation, et cetera, over the last couple of months, or last couple of months and things. I wondered if there are any lessons that we can be drawn from some of that work where some of those suppliers obviously were sort of parading themselves as digital first, et cetera, and uh, sort of whether the data we have available from smart meters, et cetera, potentially helped Ofgem better manage that transition than, say, 10 years ago when... I suspect we might have had people just like completely shut down in the system. I don't know. It'd be interesting to get your reflections. So I think, it, I mean, it, I will answer the question, but, but in the context, it's, it's very interesting because I do a lot of work in the food sector as well. And, you know, Tesco for 30 years has been able to predict your change in, in your health off the back of the profiling, right? The energy sector, even those who are very digitally sort of minded and would present themselves as tech companies, have virtually no visibility of their customers at all, right? I mean, really, they are meter numbers. And the texture on understanding consumer, and they will have to start to really understand consumer behavior, um, the level of engagement that consumers will want, and also manage the consent process, which is going to be crucial. Um, I think the failure um, in terms of the retail sector has been, I mean, obviously it's been price volatility. There's a lot of governance issues there around um, whether they were resilient enough to actually, in, in many ways, have a supplier license. I think there's questions there around regulation, etc. Um, but I wouldn't say that data was the problem. I do think that for the failures, I, I do think understanding customers is a major weakness in the energy sector. And if they're going to have to distinguish between me who might have a heat pump but not an EV, you who might have two EVs, no heat pump, you might also have totally different needs to, to other people. Currently, the energy sector divides 60 million people into six archetypes. Okay? Is that right at the forefront of tailoring, um, segmentation, etc.? And we know that um, Amazon segments us into 150,000 different archetypes. So I think we've got a long way to go on that consumer insight tailoring propositions. I'm going to come back to the room for questions. Did we have one down the front? I think we did. Um, <clears throat> There's a couple of observations, I suppose. One is, if we know how much electricity is in people's cars, are they the ones they're going to steal in future, I wonder? But anyway, um, <laughs> real-time energy theft. Um, but, but more seriously, I mean, at the moment, we've got a situation where the, the national grid is managed on a basis where they're having to literally watch the meters to see if they're going to start using more than we have. That's, I think that's common knowledge. Um, and in theory, what this will give us is the ability to forecast. It, it's not so much re, well, retail in the sense of consumers, but in terms of businesses, being able to persuade them to change their habits in order to better control our consumption. 
Mm -hmm. that's, that's the nirvana, really, I suppose, that this offers us. Yeah. Um, it also offers the opportunity for people to, to game the system and to do bad things. And all of it sits on data, which, of which we do not know the quality at the moment. So my question is, what, what's being done about quality? And, and, and just who will have access to all of this data which is open? So the quality point is really, really interesting. And we went through this through the, the Energy Data Task Force, and that is, if we had said to the energy sector, um, your data has to be of good quality before you open it, we would be here for 20 years, right? So what we did was actually the reverse and say, actually, everybody's data is, I mean, I think it's a technical term, I think it's called crap, and we're just going to have to lean into it. But so is the data, that some of the government data, and so is some of the regula regulator. So what we wanted to do was to have presumed open, and the data sets that are useful, actually, other people will come and clean it up. So I, I totally agree with you. We're not in, you know, we're not in a perfect place. And some of the data doesn't really, ex I mean, it exists on PDFs, and you've got people who've written things in on pencil. Okay. Um, but your point about um, us being trusting the data and in many ways having to um, manage a different quantity of data is really interesting because one of the things we've got to really recognize, and that is the weather, the sun and the wind does not take price signals. It doesn't follow legislation, right? So the majority of our balancing of the energy system is going to have to be done by demand, whether that be, it can be demand storage or it can be consumer demand changes and shifts. But then we have a different, an, another asset, and that is National Grid is saying that by 2030, we will have um, the number of EVs on the system will equate to two nuclear power stations. So I wonder whether uh, the people opposite are listening with their energy security thing. So we've got lots, we, we will have distributed assets rather than in many ways consolidated. It, it's not going to be perfect. We just but we do have to start somewhere, and perfection might be, uh, be a long way into the future. Excellent, thank you. In the final 30 seconds, you mentioned that Ofgem have taken up quite a few of the recommendations of your previous report. Yeah. Do you have any reflections on how government has responded to the, 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 the task force reports that you've published? And I've been absolutely um, astounded in terms of things that move quite quickly. So the uh, data task force was about sort of eight, about two and a half months since we, when we made the report, then they adopted um, the recommendations. And now all the recommendations are now embedded in um, energy licenses. So they're actually regulatory requirements. Um, I think the digitalization task force is more complex. There are more moving parts and there's a lot more debate and you know, in all these things, there aren't 100% right answers, but there are decisions to be made. And we've worked very, very, I mean, they commissioned these reports and they have been fabulous as partners. Excellent. Well, again, an optimistic note on which to end. Laura, thank you very much. Thank you. And last, but by no means least tonight, we have Leanne. Okay. Uh, 
Right. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Leanne. Uh, I am here to, with you today from the NHS. Uh, we are now the NHS Transformation Directorate, uh, but we've been undergoing quite a few different, um, I'm going to say schmushing, that's the official term, uh, recently looking at our whole digital um, kind of infrastructure so that we can support transformation. For me, it's a really positive. Um, it's a really positive step that digital is potentially not going to be its own thing anymore, because I think it's a sign that digital transformation is underway when you start to call it the NHS again. You know, so um, again, some of these views today might be a little bit my own. You will see it's got draft all over it, um, but if we don't socialise them, you know, it might never catch on. Um, so I've been given the unenviable task of delivering a strategy for AI within health and care. Um, I think Laura's presentation about the energy sector kind of sums up a little bit where we are in health. Um, we did publish a strategy or, you know, a program, a policy, um, I think it was about 2002, the National Program for IT, still delivering it, you know, um, not quite there. So I've got a lot a lot of things to kind of bring together uh, in terms of, um, you know, what we might want to do to achieve kind of this, um, what we're calling a learning health and social care system. So the idea of that is, you know, uh, a health and social care system that's routinely thinking about, uh, you know, sort of personalized care and support journeys, uh, that we're being data informed, you know, so at the moment, uh, during COVID, we obviously had a lot of, um, sort of a lot more insight, a lot more data on the activity that was happening within health and care, which is something that we don't necessarily have at a national, regional, or you know, sort of trust level that's really kind of methodical at the moment. So we're sort of looking, how do we, how do we you know, sort of drive the system so that people can make more uh, informed decisions in ways that we see in other industries? Um, this is kind of like uh, for our operational data, um, you know, so that we can support commissioning services. You know, if, if, if we've got lots of pregnant people in one borough, do we need more midwives there? You know, possibly. Um, and we don't necessarily know that. So maybe we can know that, and then maybe we can use some of the technologies like machine learning, artificial intelligence to support with that where it's necessary to do so. So we've set this vision. Um, we're using um, kind of a VMOS framework for our strategy. So uh, trying to be agile, <laughs> you know, sort of iterating um, what we do. So we've got vision, missions, and then sort of some strategies and objectives and a roadmap underneath that. Um, so yeah, the main goal obviously is always delivering better outcomes um, for the public, uh, but we need to do that in line with the priorities that the health and care system set, because obviously the technology is not going to be the answer. It might help. Um, right. So here we go. So this is um, this is a bit of an overview which makes sense to me. And I was thinking, after such brilliant presentations from our other colleagues, you have to understand that there's a data architecture infrastructure that we sit on top of. And obviously, I live with my head in the clouds thinking about AI. So um, sort of this infrastructure that we've got uh, sort of at the bottom here, digitize, connect, transform. This was a former strategy of our NHSX portfolio, which is no longer, um, it, we, we don't have NHSX anymore. We're now part of the NHS. So uh, obviously, that's been uh, connected. But essentially, the principles of Digitize, Connect, Transform are, one, we need the tech. Two, it needs to talk to each other. And then once those things happen, maybe we can actually start to do some things with the, you know, with the technology. Um, a data strategy is imminent. There was a, sort of an early draft published last year. There will be another one coming. Um, and, and that sort of underpins uh, sort of 
the, our commitments to how we will be using um, data within the NHS and obviously res thinking responsibly around um, you know, the, the trust that we have with, um, with the public's data so that we can deliver their care. And then the AI strategy is sitting very much on top of that, trying to pull out some threads, you know, sort of what can we do then uh, if we're able to sort of um, more routinely uh, have access uh, to information, sort of as um, colleagues from the ONS were saying, um, so that we can actually kind of manage our health and care system, we're probably on to a good start. There's a whole bunch of um, other things on the side there, which is sort of the AI ecosystem. So the NHS AI Lab uh, has had funding for the last couple of years and has been investing in generating an evidence base to support the wider adoption of technologies uh, because we don't just want to unleash technology without checking that it's actually going to deliver um, you know, the appropriate patient benefits. So we're getting some early evidence from that. It's looking promising, um, but it is a laboratory. Um, so, we have this whole ecosystem, everything's coming, but when I was asked to sort of have a look at the strategy, we were sort of like, well, where do we even start? You know, like how, what's going on? You know, but, you know, but still, as I've got here. So, um, we've got questions around, you know, sort of, yeah, let's use all the data, but what data? Where is it? How do we find it? You know, how does someone access that? What are the legal basis for that person to even access that in the first place? For one, training purposes, but later they run and maintain. Who knows, you know, like we need to get that sort of sorted. There's lots of work's happening in the data strategy space, you know, and TREs, all this kind of thing. So it's not as bad as I'm making that sound, but I'm trying to make, be dramatic, you know. Um, we also have got some problems sort of like if we have one workforce, uh, you know, so, so maybe, um, maybe we do replace everyone with robots, you know, but then who's gonna train the robots? You know, we haven't really thought all those things through. Um, of course, we're not going to replace everyone with robots. The idea of this is to create capacity, you know, sort of if someone can support in uh, re reading a radiology um, scan and that's sort of read by another clinician, um, it's sort of in increasing the, uh, the speed at which we can do things. We've obviously still got massive um, questions about public perception. Um, the, uh, the CDEI, CDI, isn't it, report uh, had... Um, the word cloud was like robots, scary with AI, um, and our evidence has found that people are on the fence. Um, so, clinical people are a bit more on the fence for clinical applications of AI. They are um, they're interested in how AI might help them. Uh, interestingly, so you know, with their own um, sort of with their own technology, and we've also got sort of quite immature uh, commercial and regulatory pathways. A lot of work is happening in this space, but it's still not quite, you know, a clean, efficient market. Um, so, this is the approach that we're pitching. Got to get it all signed off by the ministers and everything. Um, but essentially, we know we've got a lot of problems, so what we're trying to do is, is, is address the, the problems that we've experienced from AI developers. Um, so one of those is, is the access to the data sets, as I've talked about. So we're going to be looking at um, how do we make data sets navigable um, and what are the access rights, um, sort of what's the benchmark that we will set in order for those data sets to then be used if, you know, if it's deemed appropriate to do so. Uh, so we'll sort of be looking, so we're working really closely with our colleagues on trusted research environments, public engagement, um, looking at the data, um, you know, sort of data access requirements as well. There's quite a lot of technical things here that we're not necessarily thinking about. Um, you know, is a, if, if a midwife can be trained and registered to access, you know, with a smart card, maybe a data scientist could too. You know, we're just sort of hypothesizing around some of these questions. 
Pathway optimization is a focus on user needs. So this is sometimes people come to us with great AI, doesn't really solve anything. So we're going to try and articulate our problems a bit better. And then the final one, safer scaling. So this is looking at sort of if we've got uh, a data set that you know, people can navigate, a problem that they're solving, and it works, then what, how do we scale that? You know, so imaging is technology already that we can actually use. Um, we're starting to look at, so you know, what's the regulatory environment for that? What's the commercial pathway? And also, how do we triangulate our governance with wider governance for AI? So we work really closely with groups like the Office of AI, WHO, international sort of stuff to see we don't want to over... We don't, we don't want to over-invent things for the NHS, you know, uh, how do we lean in and make sure that we represent health and social care's needs in those wider governance debates. Did I do it? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Leanne. Um, I'll come to the audience for the second round of questions in the building. Um, if you're online, you can submit your questions via Slido, and if you're not already on the Slido, it's bit.ly slash slidodb28. I'll be saying that in my sleep tonight. Um, so first question from online, which you've touched on already, actually, and I think it's been a bit of a theme running through some of the presentations this evening. This is from Steve Black, who says, how do you and the strategy differentiate between the unhinged techno-utopianism that believes AI can solve any problem and the need to invest in AI tools that can be expected to work on real problems. So we want to be really boring. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to address it, but um, ideally this is something that, you know, sort of it, it, we just get on with and, and we just do and we do it right and we work with all of our colleagues across different departments and, you know, it's sort of, it goes away, you know, we don't really want the exceptionalism. Obviously, there are incredible people out there doing really whiz-bang things, and I personally am really interested in, like, this consciousness debate, you know, but that's my, you know, I can read that in my spare time. For my job, I need to make sure that we're actually delivering, you know, the, the adequate health and care um, services for the nation. So, does that answer it? I think it does. Okay, Thank you. good. Um, in the building audience, do we have any questions? We've got, let's go for front first and we'll come to you for the next question at the back. Hi. Hi. Um, you mentioned in your talk that we need the tech and the interoperability first. Um, we're still quite a long way away from that in the NHS. I'd be surprised if there's any major strides by 2030, frankly. So <laughs> I'm just wondering why is an AI strategy important now when there's still so much work to do on the foundations? Yeah, I really ask myself that question. Um, I, and I've worked, so I've worked in the NHS now for about four years looking at different um, kind of like patients' access to their records and our NHS.UK estate like content, how do we drive behaviour change, things like that. Um, and I sort of thought, well, this job sounds quite cool because at least I can go and be boring in this whizzy AI stuff. So not that I'm obviously a person, you know, I don't hold the keys to this, but um, I think that it's just, it, the reason that we're talking about data readiness, that we're talking about pathway optimization, is we're not really doing AI, we're just doing good digital development. And then the idea is that we'll put the, you know, the, the rails on the road that mean that when, it's, when we're ready to launch ML and AI we're able to. And there's already examples of technologies that are working, you know, and, and we need to look at how we scale that, what the, I say sort of what the N is, you know, at what population level should we, um, can we deploy, uh, you know, this particular uh, algorithm for a clinical di 
diagnostic tool that's representative so that we're you know, being equitable, we're not putting bias and, and such like that into the technologies. So um, yeah, maybe by being boring again. Excellent. I think we've got a question at the back. Um, you mentioned health and social care at a few points, but you really talk mostly about health. I wonder if you had a view on what the different challenges are in social care, and I imagine the data is a lot worse and lives with many more bodies. Yeah, uh, good point. Um, there's my bias, my bias is um, to lean towards the health. Um, so we are working with colleagues that are working on social care policy and looking, particularly on that pathway optimization mission, at how, whether or not um, a social care user case is a good sort of greenfield site. Um, in some ways, it's so complicated how we do that. It, we may as well start there. Um, I think it kind of mirrors what Laura was saying around, you know, that there is some data in some cases in places, so what can we do? Um, so, yeah, we are working really closely with uh, lots of different, I would say, policy areas to see whether or not we can marry that up. Thank you. Um, a not unrelated question, actually, from Anonymous, who's been very busy this evening, as ever. Um, they've got sort of two questions. The first okay. is, what are you doing to support building a better public health system in addition to health and social care? And the second bit is, how will you support being able to link to other forms of data to do this to understand the wider determinants of yeah, I think that's a really, um, I think that's a really good question, um, and uh, I, I'm interested in some of some of the wider government um, pieces of work. So, what you know, talking about the ONS there, like how, how do we do that well, and are some of these pathways that we optimise? Actually, I don't think I think in terms of my mission, I think the data mission is where we'll, we'll do that. So, you know, the can we get um, air quality? data to look at asthma, you know, and, and triangulate that and maybe provide better services because something I was really interested as well in the energy sector, the green, um, you know, this sort of green agenda, the NHS uses a ton of energy. What are we going to do about it? You know, and, and how do we, how do we even, I don't even know. We need to think about these things, you know. <laughs> Great, just some small issues to solve there. Um, <laughs> have we got any more questions in the building before I go back online? Anyone? In the room? Yes. So, so we all know that the, the health data is incredibly rich, and you set out some of the challenges you, you saw ahead, data quality being one, data additional yeah. maturity being other. Have you got any sense of which of those are the big blockers that you need to, to put the focus of attention on? Yeah, so I would say data quality is huge. As I said, the navigability of the data set, so like knowing where the data even is, is sort of like a first-line challenge. And then, um, yeah, data quality um, is the next one. There are some technologies that are looking at sort of, um, you know, as you're inputting data, can it sort of help with codifying that sort of thing? We're looking at natural language processing as well to see can we, can we just find stuff from the data anyway? But whether or not we, under, whether or not we understand what that data is telling us is what we've got to learn to then improve the data quality. Um, I'm a bit of a user center design, like I love that kind of stuff. So I think that we can improve data quality by just actually commissioning better products that, you know, midwife, um, health visitor, allied health professional sort of thing. When they're actually entering something or maybe they're doing it by voice, um, you know, that data is actually being augmented in some way. Um, yeah, so I think data quality, um, well, you mentioned something else though as well. Uh, I mentioned digital maturity. 
Digital, yeah, so equity is a big problem. So like the, the distribution of the, of the, even the delivery of health services, but some of the investments we've made with digital have, have meant that we've got centers of excellence and also then some areas where there's, there's no digital. You know, so we really have to bring up that baseline and we, we don't know how to do this yet, but that's one of the things we're looking at is how do we accelerate the maturity of the, of the like, digitally poorest, let's say, so that they can get up quicker so that if a product works, like for instance, we've got a very promising product with stroke um, and it's looking at uh, delivering better health outcomes um, sort of from a district general hospital uh, into kind of a, uh, more specialist centers. Like can we actually, um, can we spread that around, you know, and, and how do we get those places up a bit quicker, so. And in our final minute, a question from Michelle Edwards. How we collect data is important, and the generic terminology used to do so, in my opinion, needs to be reviewed. For example, using catch-all terms such as BAME groups, when we know this is not a homogenous group. How will the NHS address this using AI? Ooh, how will we address that using AI? So we're working on um, a, a standard at the moment um, that's looking at kind of uh, ethical, it's like ethical frameworks, but it is for um, more representation in data so that we can actually have, um, I'm gonna get the words wrong. I, somebody said earlier today, we need homogeneous data sets. And I'm like, I actually think we need heterogeneous because we're all different, you know? So actually we need to be able to allow for the fact that we're all different, but at, you know, different phases. So um, good question, <laughs> not sure. Um, uh, the, um, the Global Partnership for AI launched a, um, a paper on uh, data justice, uh, I think it was last week, um, and, and that looks at sort of, yeah, the human rights elements of, you know, the delivery of, it, it's AI and, and data, you know, these things are so interlinked, but um, when we look at things like rare diseases, obviously we're looking at outliers, and AI is, you know, statistics is it trying to find the outliers not if you don't ask it to so these are but these are questions in health policy anyway you know so it's part of just how we should make things better maybe excellent well Leanne thank you very much indeed thank you So a few quick parish notices before we finish and before I let our audience in the building get hold of a few drinks. Um, we've got lots of events coming up at the IFG uh, over the next few weeks. So you can find more details on the website. Events on everything from levelling up and net zero in the same event. Two government priorities for the price of one. Uh, we've got an event on whether all schools should be academies. And we've got an in-conversation event with Jamie Driscoll, Mayor of the North of Tyne up in Newcastle. Uh, the next Data Bytes will be on Star Wars Day, Wednesday the 4th of May. May the 4th be with you at 6pm. All that remains for me to say is a huge thank you to all of you online and all of you here in the building for joining us. And please join me in a round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Thank you very much and good night. <laughs>